Kia ora, and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 15, and my ads. Before we start, I just have a quick announcement to make. As you may or may not know, Hans is currently funded by one person, and that's me. I do this as a hobby, funded from my full-time job, and I do really love it. I want to make Hans bigger and better though, but to do that, it does cost money. Money I don't exactly have, due to also trying to live and have a house and, you know, all of that. So to help with that, I've started a Patreon, which many of you will already be familiar with. But for those of you who don't know, Patreon is a website where you can donate to all sorts of creators on a monthly basis. I've thought long and hard about this for quite some time now, as I've always been apprehensive to accept money for something that I absolutely believe should be free to access. As such, no matter if you decide to donate or not, I'll always keep making this for free in my spare time for you to learn and enjoy. This is more just an optional extra if you wish to support us further. There are $1, $5, $10 and $20 tiers that are charged monthly, so if you can only give a buck a month, it's no problem at all. At this stage, all the tiers have the same rewards, and I'll flesh out some more for the higher tiers later, but at this stage, I thought you can just give whatever you think it's worth to you. The two rewards so far are that I'll give a shout out to each patron in the next episode after they sign up, and you get access to the Discord server, which is where you can talk to other patrons as well as myself. So if that is something that you would be interested in, I'll chuck a link on the website, or you can just search History of Aotearoa New Zealand on Patreon.com. Thanks for your consideration. Last time, we talked about Matariki, the Māori New Year, what that meant, and how it was celebrated. Before that, we heard the great demigod Maui and his early years, ultimately leading to him gaining the jawbone of his grandfather, which will become central to his most famous feats. This episode, we are going to move on to our next major topic that is probably one of the more famous parts of Māori culture, as it is still heavily practiced to this day, and almost everyone who lives or has visited Aotearoa has had some sort of experience with it. Carving. Before we talk about the carvings themselves though, we're going to spend some time talking about the tools they used and how these tools were made. What we are going to spend most of our time talking about is toki, adzes, which were arguably the most important tool in the traditional Māori toolkit. We have talked about adzes briefly before, and I gave a very quick description of what they are. I'll put up some photos under this episode on the website, but to give you a brief idea, imagine a modern woodcutting axe. Shorten the handle until it's about two hand widths long, flip the blade to be horizontal, and make it totally straight rather than flared out. That is the very rough shape of an adze, if you imagine it without the modern materials of course. Like many aspects of Māori life, the origin of tools like adzes and chisels comes from myth. The first toki were given to Tane Mahuta by Uru Tenanana, the personification of light, as part of his efforts to separate his parents. Given some versions of the myth tell that Tane wanted to use four po one for each compass direction, to hold Rangi and Papa apart. The only thing was that Uru gave Tane the blades, the stone bit that does the cutting on the adze, so handles were needed to make them effective, or really work at all. What happened next is a chicken or the egg sort of problem I suspect. 
in that it's like the Jewish myth of blacksmith tongs. You need tongs to pull anything from a forge, even if you're going to be making more tongs. So the myth goes that God gave man the first tongs to get them going so that they could then smith. In our case, Tane would need wood to make handles for the toki, so he would need to cut down a tree with a toki, of which he held the first two blades in existence. As you can probably tell, there's a bit of an issue here. So given the predicament, Tane decided to default to the next most obvious solution. Murder. It was decided that the bones of his brothers would be used as handles for the blades, and two Mata'uinga ended up doing the deed. This was the first instance of killing in Māori culture, and the reason too became the fearsome god of war. Now complete with handle and blade, the toki were named Te Awhiro Rangi and Te Whiro Nui. These two adzes appear over and over in Māori mythology to fell trees and create waka. Some tales even saying they helped make the waka of the great fleet, with another saying one was used to calm a storm on their way to Aotearoa by cutting up the waves. In many of these stories, they also appear with a certain character, Rata. Rata isn't a god, but he is a legendary character in that he is credited as being the one who passed down the knowledge of how to build a waka and use adzes to fell trees. Te Awhiorangi is said to have been brought to Aotearoa and was apparently found in a tree by a woman in 1887, immediately being recognised by local Komatua for what it was. I'm unsure what happened to the ads after this, but it is possible it is currently held by Nārauru, the iwi that initially hid and then refound the ads. Te Awhiorangi and Te Nui aren't the only two toki that are famous. There are a number of well-known adzes throughout history and mythology that did a variety of jobs, especially the adzes that built the Great Fleet. One such toki, Tutoru, which is said to have helped carve Tarawa Waka, is currently claimed to be held by the Rotorua Museum. However, it seems the museum is currently closed due to the building not being up to safety standards following the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake. So I'm not sure if it's actually still there or if there is currently any way to see it. In any case, I've been unable to find any evidence that it actually was an ads used to carve Tarawa, and it may be one of those things that we really never get a complete answer on. Some versions of the Kupe and Tafiki story have Kupe killing the great octopus with a toki as well. Adzes, as you can probably tell, had a huge amount of importance placed on them in Māori culture. Part of this is due to the reliance on adzes to cut, build and create, both in the practical sense for survival and the spiritual sense for carving. The latter especially so, as adzes were used to carve not only the visage of their ancestors, but waka, which was all part of the theme of hawaiki and migration also found throughout Māori culture in stories. Adzes were the beginning of Māori arrival in New Zealand by building the waka that would carry them across the ocean from their homeland. Another aspect of the mythology around adzes is the sandstone used to sharpen them, which is personified in Hine Tua Hoanga, the Lady of Sandstone. She is part of a whole lineage of stones and rocks that are represented by their own personifications and descended from Rakahore, the personification of all rocks. Hine Tua Hoanga was given to Tane as part of his quest to separate his parents, and he sharpened Te Awhiorangi and Te Nui upon her back, explaining why sandstone is used to sharpen adzes. 
As we have already seen, Māori used myth, marriage and offspring to explain the world around them. And in the case of sandstone, all other rocks were afraid of her ability to cut them down and fled all over to escape her. This was used as a device to tell others where to find certain rocks, such as in the following excerpt from the book Te Toki Me Te Fau by Clive Fugel, who in turn got it from the recounts of Elston Best, an ethnographer in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The story tells of a battle between the Ponamu people and the people of Sandstone, with Ponamu being defeated and having to flee to find a new place to live. Quote, On arriving at Tahua, Mare Island, they found it occupied by the offspring of Fatuaho, Obsidian. Potini's followers, Greenstone, carried on to the east coast, but there they found the offspring of Hinetua Hoanga, Sandstone, and Fatuaho residing at Hikurangi, and Waiapu, Shirt, residing at the mouth of the Waiapu River. The Pornamu fled again, coming upon Waipero, where they found the offspring of Hinetua Hoanga living at Pokurukuru. End quote. The story continues on like this, naming places and whose offspring lived there, but the main takeaway is this is how Māori communicated not just ideas and beliefs, but real-world knowledge and locations. These stories are more than just, well, stories. They were useful, perhaps even vital to their survival, and are one of the most fascinating parts of Māori culture that survives to us today. Anyway, going quickly back to Sandstone, when adzes were being sharpened, especially if they were an important or famous adze, karakia were often said to help sharpen them and to pray for them to perform their duties well. We actually see deep grooves on various sandstone outcrops or rocks near rivers, indicating spots where Māori frequented to sharpen their tools. So let's take a quick look at what kind of rocks were being used to make toki and other tools. Obsidian is one of the flashier ones, found where volcanoes are present, which was throughout the Pacific. Māori were likely somewhat familiar with it already, and its presence in Aotearoa may have even been a deciding factor to settle here. Obsidian was napped, that is, chipped with a smaller stone, to produce a fine edge for cutting, which would be serrated if needed by pressing a stick to the edge and pushing along it. These knives would then be used for things like cutting open and skinning animals, or scraping their skins of meat. One of the other interesting things about obsidian is its colour being associated with rank. Black for commoners, grey and green for children and higher ranks, and red for ariki. Māori women had a custom of cutting themselves in mourning, and when someone died, their rank would determine what type of obsidian they would cut themselves with, if they had access to it. Otherwise, they might just use power or muscle shells. Basalt was another volcanic rock, with the best apparently being found in Opito Bay, in the Coromandel. Apparently that deposit was found, or at least was known to be there by Coupe himself when he passed through the area during his adventures. Basalt was widely used for adzes in the northern half of the North Island, with every archaeological site found thus far containing basalt adzes, or at least the beginnings of them. And looking at the Coromandel extraction site, you can kinda see why. The quarry is 11 acres in size, with about one metre of material removed from the surface, with chips, hammer stones, and even some pre-adds forms being left behind. This was a massive operation. Granted, it was a centuries-long time scale, but this was no mean feat. 
In a similar vein, <laughs> Argolite was used widely throughout New Zealand, with the main source being Durville Island, Aotearoa's eighth largest island, situated in the Marlborough Sounds. As Durville was an island, it had easy access via waka to transport adzes, which were made into preforms there to allow for easy transportation and sale. This site was so prolific, it is estimated that about 15,000 adzes were made there over the period it was active, likely a couple of centuries. Again, this was a large-scale operation, despite the time scale. In what we have already discussed, we have missed one crucial step. What I mean is, we have rocks in the ground, and we have rocks that are now toki, or at least the beginnings of them. So at some point, we have to get the rocks out of the ground. Māori had a couple of different ways of doing this, depending on the situation, and they were all rather ingenious. The most straightforward method was if the desired stone was part of an outcrop, a large boulder would be rolled onto it to weigh it down and break the outcrop, hopefully making it shatter or at least reduce its size. Another method would be to light a fire underneath the cliff face to heat the rock up as much as possible. Once it had reached the desired temperature, water would be thrown on to rapidly cool it, which would cause the rock to crack, just like if you did the same thing to your plates. Large stones made of a harder stone like granite would then be thrown at the cliff face to break away workable pieces to turn into adzes or other tools. Some of these stones had been found to weigh a whopping 25 to 50 kgs. This would shatter the surface layer to the point where it was unusable, but that wasn't a problem. The stone underneath is what they were after to turn into tools. The final neat method they used is instead of throwing rocks at the heated slash cooled cliff face, was to hammer wooden pegs into the cracks and soak them in water. This would expand and split the rock more, releasing those precious workable pieces. The other important rock that was widely used by Māori was ponamu, greenstone, or jade as it is called in other parts of the world. Ponamu was worked slightly differently to other rocks, with the three stages being sawing, drilling, and grinding. Soaring involved cutting the rock from large boulders into carryable pieces. This could be done by straddling the rock and using a handheld piece of sandstone to start the cut, before transferring to a greywack cutter to continue, using water to cool and quartz sand as an abrasive. Or, there is my personal favourite, getting a 3 metre length of pirita, supplejack vine, and using it to tie together a series of sandstone or greywack teeth to create a saw with wooden handles at either end. I'll put a diagram up on the website, because these things looked super cool. The teeth would have worn out quickly though, so multiple saws were likely made before work began. You could alternately just use the pirita vine with water and sand, but in my opinion, that's not as fun. Once the piece was carryable, it would be further made smaller by drilling holes along the natural cracks and faults. Sand was placed into the holes, along with pegs, and then covered in water, causing the pegs to swell and the ponamu to break. These pieces would then be ground down with sandstone into midi, heitiki, toki, or whatever else was needed. Once you had the nicely sized rocks, you could work them into the desired shape by using a hammerstone to flake off the excess. This would further be refined with some finer flaking to reduce the harsh marks left behind from the hammerstone to give you the vague shape. 
Up until this point, the Toki would still be at the quarry, but now it was time to be transported to its destination, maybe bought and sold a bit, before it would get into the hands of someone who would refine the preform further. Smaller hammer stones made of quartz and other hard material would be used to chip and peck the adze to refine its shape and get rid of the rougher edges even further until it was more or less the final product. This would leave a pockmarked finish though, so the final step was to use a sandstone to grind it down to a nice smooth surface. It would also be at this point that the cutting edge of the toki would be formed, giving that nice beveled edge. Usually, this stage was done at a river or stream, as we have mentioned, as water aided in the sanding process, just like modern grindstones. A slight variation on this was that sometimes green wood from lace bark, or hohiri, was rubbed onto the toki blade to polish and sand them down. The main thing with this though, was that you had to ensure to dip the bark in water occasionally, so it didn't become too hot or dry out and become ineffective. Now that you had a nice blade, you needed a handle to complete your toki. What you wanted would depend on what you wanted to use it for, such as larger, heavier toki for dressing timber or cutting out waka, one-handed toki for making paddles and weapons, and there were even smaller adzes about 3-6cm to six centimeters in width to give them their final finish. Once you decided what kind of adze you wanted, you would need to find some wood for the handle. Like many parts of Māori material culture, this relied somewhat on what was available to them. For example, tūhoi and iwi whose rohi boundaries are in the eastern part of the North Island between Taupo and Gisborne, favour wood such as mātai, black pine, tawa, a type of broadleaf, or tafiru. Kodi was also a favourite in regions where it was present, with manuka and kānuka potentially also being used in various areas as well. Even Pahutakawa, New Zealand's Christmas tree, was taken for carving on the coasts. The handle of a toki would be made from the end of a branch connected to the trunk of the tree, with the more basal part eventually forming the foot where the blade would sit, sitting at an angle. I'll put a picture up of this on the website too to give you a better idea of what I mean. The handle would be smoothed out so you could hold it properly and not get splinters, before placing the blade on the foot. Hohere bark or ropo would be placed on top of the blade and then the whole thing would be bound up with cord and the hohere or ropo doused in water to make it swell and tighten up the bindings. The toki was now ready for use. If the bindings ever became loose however, more bark could be placed in with the blade and saturated to tighten them up again. I find this really curious as I would have thought a more obvious answer to this issue would be to just tighten up the cord or get more. I guess it was due to cord being sort of hard to make. It was made by braiding together three or more strands of muka or sometimes cabbage tree fibre which would make the cord stronger and minimise breakage. Perhaps it was just easier to chuck some wood in the gap and splash some water on it rather than make more cord or they were unable to tighten it due to the types of knots. The shape of the toki handle was also important but again depending on what you wanted to use it for. This varied from region to region, but there are four examples of different handles from Wairarapa, which I'll put up an image for on the website as well, to help you get a better idea of what I'm trying to describe. Tahimaro was a simple, straight handle to give maximum strength to the tool, making it less liable to break, making it good for heavier work. 
tukirangi were curved more at the blade end and usually gripped with one hand on the straight part and the other on the curved part and was a general purpose handle except for the heaviest jobs. Kokorangi were shaped more like an S with each end heavily curved, specifically being used to hollow out timber such as for waka. Aruku was straight but had a sharp curve at the handle end of the adz similar to a walking stick or an umbrella. It was designed for chipping off wood for tree felling or hollowing out waka as well. Next time, we will talk more about toki. Specifically, we look at toki patangata, ceremonial adzes that were highly decorated with carvings of their own, as well as other adornments that weren't really for everyday use. We will also talk about some other neat little tools and devices Māori used to aid in their carving, such as chisels and drills. From there into future episodes, we will discuss the mythological origins of carving as a whole, what images Māori were and are carving, and a bit about how carving has changed from its East Polynesian ancestry. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaotearoa at gmail.com or Twitter at historyaotearoa or Facebook at History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. Remember there is now a Patreon if you would like to support Hans even more, but if you're unable to do that, don't forget to rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform and to tell your friends to help us grow and teach more people about the history of our island nation. As always, hari tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.